and welcome to episode 74 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with 11 years experience in Brazil and China. This episode is one for the bears. I spoke to Gloria Dickey, the author of the book Eight Bears. Gloria also happens to be my coworker. She's a climate and environment correspondent for Reuters based in London. While we both work on climate, Gloria and I have very different career stories. Gloria has been an environment reporter for more than a decade, deciding to focus on the environment before it was seen as a highly desirable beat. She spent most of that time as a freelancer. This was by no means easy, and her story is really one about persevering. The word I kept using in the interview is precarious. At one point, she was broke and living out of her car, that is, until the car broke down. Yet, in the midst of all this, she conceived and reported a book. As the title Eight Bears might suggest, it's about the world's eight bear species. She traveled to India, China, Vietnam, Peru, and Ecuador, in addition to the U.S. and Canada, to tell the stories of the world's few remaining bear species and how they are under threat from humans. Only once the book was written did she join Reuters as a full-time staffer. If you're listening to this episode right when it comes out, you can still pre-order Eight Bears on Amazon or via your local bookstore. Or you can buy it when the book comes out on July 11th in the United States and August 25th in the United Kingdom. It's gotten some great reviews and is sure to be one of the biggest environmental books of the year. So if you care about cuddly bears or about biodiversity, go check it out. So now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Gloria Dickey, a climate and environment correspondent for Reuters and author of the book, Eight Bears. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Gloria. Hi, Jake. Thanks for having me. To warm up a little bit, if you could set the scene for us, tell us about the physical space around you and also where you are geographically and a little bit about what your past week of work was like. Sure. I am currently in my studio apartment or flat, if you will, and I'm in northwest London. It is a gray, rainy day here and... What I do with my past week of work, I worked on a few enterprise stories at Reuters that we've had in the pipeline for, I think, two to three months now, and finally working on getting those cleared and hopefully pivoting back to more news in the coming weeks and, I guess, a project with you, too. Yep, which we can't talk about per Reuters policy, but <laughs> yeah, no, that should be a good one. Okay, and yeah, we'll get into more what your job is today, a little bit later in the podcast, but a big point of the podcast is to let people know how you got to where you are today, and I like to start way, way back at the beginning. If you could tell us where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like, and if anything, planted the seed of interest in journalism early on. So I was born in the other London, London, Ontario, Canada, and grew up there, much less cool than London, the UK, although we do have the Thames River, we have Piccadilly, Hyde Park, <laughs> other kind of markers of an inferiority complex. Um, there's also a Paris, Ontario nearby. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, pretty like general childhood. Um, London's kind of the sprawling suburban hellscape in some ways. Most notably, it's often used as an example globally of how urban planning can fail. <laughs> so yeah, very spread out, kind of a low city, not much going on, um, not much nature. I know a lot of people kind of associate Canada with like vast wilderness, hmm. bears, if you will, but we had none of that. We <laughs> had squirrels and like rabbits, and that was kind of 
the height of charismatic megafauna for someone who wanted to be more in nature. And so I spent a lot of time reading, watching a lot of like National Geographic specials. I was very obsessed with Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey. Those were kind of my idols at the time, but was pretty introverted pretty nerdy. Um, I was thinking before this that I used to spend like hours sitting in my backyard trying to photograph squirrels with like a three megapixel HP camera. When, you know, <laughs> d- digital cameras were all the rage because that was what I wanted to do. And yeah, and then I guess in terms of journalistic interests, when I went to high school, again, kind of all the same neighborhood, we never moved. Um, it's a very like boring childhood. I was in careers class and we had to do a project looking at a career that like maybe we'd want to pursue later in life. Um, and so I chose a zoologist and we had to kind of look at like what would it take to do that job and like what would you have to study and go to school for? And so when I was working on that project, I was like, oh, like this is a lot of math. And to that, to that point, like I'd basically spent most of my life trying to avoid math. <laughs> so that kind of that kind of nicks that dream, but I was using like basically environmental journalism articles to research what would go into being a zoologist. And then I was like, "Oh, well someone had to write these articles, like maybe I could do that." Cuz I was very into writing. And it feels like it should not happen that you discover what you want to do in careers class, but I kind of I kind of <laughs> did and, and luckily that stuck and that was kind of the correct choice. Yeah, so that's that's kind of my early life. That's cool. And were your parents like outdoorsy people or or you just picked up on it from TV and stuff? No, they were like very indoorsy. My brother as well, he was like, <laughs> he was petrified of bees, so my parents would always like cater to him, so we would never do anything like camping trips. We never really did anything like that. The only exposure that I really got to kind of wilderness was visiting my my grandparents lived in Calgary, Alberta, and so we would do a few trips out there when I was a kid, and Banff National Park was nearby, which has lots of cool animals. They have grizzly bears. Although my my mother was very paranoid, she like put me on one of those those like child leashes, <laughs> you know, like when you're afraid <laughs> that your kid might run off and be mauled by a grizzly bear, you put them on a leash. So I think that that perhaps also like, as my teenage rebellion <laughs> was kind of to go in and chase bears later in life. Sure. But no, they were not. My mom was a secretary at a church. My dad worked for a company that leased photocopiers. So not a lot of hmm. like connection to the to the journalism world or anything in that space. I was kind of, I think, flying blind by the time I got to undergrad. So yeah, where where did you go to undergrad? And did you have to, I don't know how it works in Canada. Did you have to pick what you were going to study going in? Or did you go in and kind of figure it out? Yeah, you had to pick going in. So I went to the local university, which was at the University of Western Ontario. Again, like my parents weren't, um, there wasn't really like money for me to go elsewhere in Canada. And I was going to be staying at home for when I did my undergrad. And I think at the time I like desperately had wanted to go to Oxford and like study English. Literature. I don't, I don't know. I had like bigger dreams than that, <laughs> sure. but it was clear that I was going to like the local school. But at the time I didn't know that Western as it was known, they had actually the only like daily print student newspaper left in Canada and actually oh. one of the only huh. few in like both Canada and the US. And a lot of Canadian schools don't have like undergraduate journalism programs and Western did not either. They had like a media and information undergraduate, which is what I majored in. And then I also minored in geography and writing. But because the student newspaper was there, that was like, I think, better training grab than actually having had a, a bachelor's in journalism. So Second year, I very nervously, I was still, still very introverted, still very shy, 
And I went to like the second, it was in the student center and I went up and I knocked on the door and I started volunteering for the paper. I think the first, the very first story that I wrote was about someone who had been killed by their captive tiger outside of London. Yeah. So I was like, I was pretty sold, you know, the charismatic megafauna reporting, (laughs) the clashes (laughs) between man and nature. Um, And yeah, I kind of became like very nerdy and very into the student paper. And that was kind of where I learned all about journalism. Um, I worked as a news editor and then a features editor. And then once I'd graduated, there were like elections that I ran and I became editor in chief of the paper. And so we would, we published four days a week and we printed like 11,000 copies each time. People from the Gazette, as it was known, like Stuart Thompson, he was my editor-in-chief when I started. He's had a couple Pulitzers at the New York Times now. Um, oh, wow. So the, the people who went through the paper, like people became speechwriters for the prime minister. It was a really kind of formative training ground, I think, for young Canadian journalists. Yeah, that's very cool. And I mean, being editor-in-chief of a school newspaper, like uh, where I went, like we also had a daily paper published five days a week. I mean, it basically was the editor's life. Um, is, was it the, that the case for you too? Yeah, very. I mean, we, we would start at like eight in the morning and we'd send it to the printer at like 10 p.m. at night. So that was my life for a full year. And even like when I was in school with classes, you'd run to your classes, you'd be running around campus. The campus itself was very much a microcosm. Like people were very engaged with student politics and people were very engaged with the student newspaper. Um, we had a staff of like 25 student journalists who like received an honorarium and we had three full-time people, um, deputy editor-in-chief and managing editor. So it was very much like your own little pretend kind of kind of world. And, you know, you'd spend all of your time, you know, you'd go drinking, you'd be in the office playing like Nintendo on breaks, you'd be like <laughs> reporting, you know, there'd be people trying to get scoops. Um, so yeah, it was really, it was a really great time in my life to do that. And I think it opened a lot of doors for me just by, by doing that versus if I had gone to a program that had you know, maybe you do an undergrad in journalism, but you wouldn't have like that full hands-on experience. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's great. And yeah, I definitely would also advocate for that because that I didn't study journalism. I just learned it all at the student paper. So same, same deal for me. Newspaper nerds unite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So by that point, I mean, you're, you're pretty sold, I imagine. Did you graduate headed straight into journalism or, or what happens? No. So I was in doing my undergrad at the time of like the financial recession. So even like a few years after that, there were not a lot of jobs available. I also like the major hurdle to me was being in Canada. The Canadian media scene still is like quite limited because you're next to the U.S. All the jobs are in the U.S. Your own media scene is quite dwarfed by that. Canadians consume U.S. media. There's really not a very vibrant scene for magazines, for online news. Basically, people go and they work for the national broadcaster. And that's kind of where the road ends. So I desperately wanted to leave Canada. (laughs) And for me, of course, you're looking south, you're looking at the U.S. And so I wanted to do my master's and I applied to the University of Colorado Boulder because they were one of the few schools anywhere that had a program in environmental journalism. And I think like it's interesting just to think back even a decade because now like climate reporting jobs are so like a dime a dozen. Everyone wants to be in environmental and climate reporting At the time, it was like quite niche. Um, There were not many people who wanted to do that. There were very few programs that specialized in that. You know, we kind of had like Al Gore and Convenient Truth come out, but this was still years before the Paris Agreement. I feel like climate reporting was kind of seen as like this fluffy, like 
you know, like sustainability, like green household products. There was like the green blog. And a lot of those jobs, even as fluffy as they were, like had been axed during the recession. So there just like wasn't a lot of opportunity. There weren't a lot of programs. Um, People weren't interested in it. But I kind of, I guess, (laughs) persevered and I... I really want to go to Boulder, but I was also like quite daunted by the fact that, you know, U.S. grad school as an international student is very expensive. I did not have the money to go. I don't think I would have probably even qualified for student loans to have gone. So my parents were very much like, you know, just choose another school in Canada, stay here, go into PR. Mm. But I was pretty determined and I applied and I ended up getting a full ride, which was definitely a life changing moment for me like I never thought I would be able to <laughs> to get out of the other London and so yeah it was definitely one of the the highlights was having not just tuition covered but also like cost of living expenses for two years and you know to leave school to leave J school with no debt was a, you know a fantastic gift so yeah so I moved to Boulder yeah and uh just out of curiosity I mean did you apply separately for the full ride if it's something you know young journalists out there and still do or does it not exist anymore do you know I well I guess full ride is like it was an, it's basically I received like a full assistantship which meant that I had to like work as a research assistant but they in in return they gave you like a stipend and wave tuition um and so there were people who could, who could get like half assistantships so you'd have to pay like I don't know like 50,000 still for two years um but if you were able to get like the one full-time position you didn't have to pay anything so I, I think those things probably still exist at some schools yeah yeah, that's cool. And so how was the program? I mean, you'd already learned a lot on the newspaper. Did you get a lot of out of grad school? Would you recommend it to other people? And just tell us how it was. Yeah. I feel like I'd recommend grad school if you can go to grad school and not emerge onto the market with debt, right? Because I think that that's like the number one kind of crippling thing if you leave with a journalism degree and you can no longer work in journalism because you have to pay off tens of thousands of dollars. For me, I felt like I, I wasn't necessarily wanting to go to grad school because I wanted to learn more about journalism, but I wanted to be able to get out of Canada and I wanted to be able to network. And I wanted to live in a place as someone who wanted to work on environmental journalism that actually had nature. And that was dealing with a lot of those issues that you would you know report on. Boulder is kind of this like fantastic epicenter of the issues between like urban and, and wilderness. Um, you know, you have like wildfires that encroach on town. You know, you have the Colorado River, you have like water issues, you have like the National Renewable Energy Labs, like very large federal institutions are based in Boulder, you know, atmospheric scientists, the scientists who like are some of the leading experts on climate change globally are based there. And you have bears, mountain lions, bobcats, everything kind of coming into town and, and creating chaos. <laughs> so I think if, sure. if you wanted to cover environmental issues, it was like such a perfect place to be. And I was really fortunate. It was a really small program. I think that there were like five, five master's students. Oh, wow. And I was like the major keener. I think I was like quite engaged. And um, I had a really excellent mentor during that time too. Michael Cotis, he'd written a book called High Crimes about like crime on Everest. And he was in the middle of reporting a second book on the wildfire crisis in the US when I was there. And he kind of like took me under his wing and taught me everything there was to know about journalism. I, growing up, I didn't have, I didn't know any journalists. So like being able to like have that mentorship with him, he took me, you know, I think one spring we, we drove out to Arizona and he was reporting on the death of the 19 Granite Mountain hotshots who'd been killed in a wildfire and just kind of, 
being able to watch how he worked and like how he networked with people and how he built sources. He really taught me like the relationship aspect of journalism. And so for me, like that was such an invaluable experience that maybe like the program itself, like the classes weren't necessarily the most enriching, but being able to have someone kind of guide me into journalism like that was completely invaluable. And yeah, Michael Kotis, I've talked to him once. He wrote the book Megafire, uh, which I've been meaning to read, but haven't gotten around to. Um, (laughs) But super nice guy. So and yeah, I mean, that that sounds familiar that, you know, it's all the things that come along with both undergrad and grad school that are often the most beneficial rather than the classes themselves and the things you end up remembering. Did getting you to the U.S., I mean, during this period as a grad student, were you producing journalism too? I was in a tricky position because I wasn't allowed to actually produce journalism because of my student visa. Basically, my entire career has been like, and I think there's a lot of journalists who can relate to this, but you're kind of at the mercy of whatever passport and visa you have. So I could basically study, I could like do some internships through the student visa that I was on, but I couldn't like publish and freelance at the same time, which I know a lot of journalists do when they're in grad school. So I was a little bit hamstrung by that. And then when you got out of school, did you stay in the U.S. or what happens then? I interned at National Geographic. My master's program was two years. And so the summer between one and two, I went to D.C. and I interned at the magazine and, you know, fulfilling my childhood dream. But I kind of felt like Nat Geo was not, it did not live up to my expectations in terms of like what I pictured that job to be like. This was, it was the summer of 2014. So it was right before Nat Geo was acquired by Fox and then eventually now acquired by Disney. But it was just like a very desk-based place. There was a lot of like, you work for Nat Geo, like this is like, you know, reward in and of itself. And so up until that point, I'd really wanted to work for National Geographic. And that kind of like shattered that, I guess, like rose colored. (laughs) It wasn't wasn't, like a terrible experience, but I wasn't like, oh, this is what I want to do. I was kind of observing that the people associated with National Geographic who were doing cool things were all freelance journalists. So I kind of came back to my second year thinking about that more. And then right upon graduation, I went and did another internship with High Country News magazine, which is based in this little like podunk mountain town called Paonia on the western slope of Colorado. And they cover issues, mostly environmental issues affecting the 11 western states. And that was a really great internship. I learned a lot about like the Rocky Mountain West. I did more reporting on, on bears there. And then... At that time, it was was a six-month internship, and this was 2015. Again, like climate change, environmental issues, not very high on the agenda. But what did happen at the end of 2015 was the Paris Agreement. And so I was kind of scouted by uh, James Baylog. He's a Boulder-based photographer for National Geographic, and he was the subject of the documentary Chasing Ice, which chronicled his work basically setting up time-lapse cameras at the world's glaciers to monitor their retreat over years and he was one of the first photographers to really visualize climate change which sounds funny now because like there's so many ways to show climate change <laughs> but like f- 15 years ago like it was actually quite difficult there was like some fires but like ice was like the main visual mechanism for climate storytelling and so he was kind of a leader in that space and he was going to Paris he was going to be giving presentations he wanted someone to come with him so he asked if I'd go to Paris with him for the climate talks And so I did that, spent like three weeks, you know, kind of running around the city, following negotiations, showing like the protests that were happening. This was like the watershed moment, I think, for climate reportage. And it was a really valuable experience to be there. It started getting 
at that point and afterwards, environmental storytelling was no longer dismissed, I think, as like this kind of like fluffier <laughs> reporting area that was kind of the catalyst moment. And so then he offered me a job back at his, he was working on another documentary. So he gave me a job that would keep me in the country for another <laughs> another year and a half. And then Trump was elected. I was getting frustrated with like, you know, how on earth do I, do I stay like in this country? I, I couldn't really see a good path forward for immigration. And so I decided to go freelance and I left the U.S. Okay. Wow. So like when you were in Paris for the climate summit, who, you were there with him, but were you publishing somewhere or was he shooting it for a documentary or, or what exactly were you doing there we <laughs> we were like taking photos for like the national geographic instagram page this was like kind of like peak instagram oh. <laughs> um yeah and i mean i was helping him with like he was giving a bunch of presentations on the sidelines and so we were like helping with that it was kind of just like going around paris though, and like taking photos and like documenting what was happening it was, a, it was a bit of a hodgepodge position but it was really great I mean, he has a very commanding presence and he was another really great early career mentor for me. So I think just like being there and around him and seeing like how he moved through this world and had carved out a pretty spectacular niche in a very competitive environment was also just like really educational. And the, the documentary you worked uh, for him on, uh, is that out? Is, uh, what is it? It, well, I did not say the whole time. It was, it was called The Human Element. Um, it did come out. I, like, left halfway through to go freelance. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we were kind of doing research on, like, characters, location. It was just basically just showing um, kind of how the world was changing through, like, fire and ice and, I guess, population and things like that. Sure. And when you go freelance, I mean, do you move back to London, Ontario? Where do you go? <laughs> that is that is the question. Um, so I basically packed up my my 2001 Volkswagen Passat, which had like hundreds of thousands of kilometers on it, and I drove north. I was trying to figure out like a good place in Canada to report from, and I didn't want to go to a major city. I was not going to go back to Ontario, so I decided to go to Prince Rupert, British Columbia, which is kind of it's northern BC. It's up near like Ketchikan, Alaska, is like the closest place. It's very, like, old kind of, like, logging-type town vibes. Twin Peaks, I guess maybe that's kind of what it's like. <laughs> sure. uh, it has, like, a population of 12,000 people. And at that point, I was, like, pretty broke. I was, like, living between, like, my car and, like, hostels in town. I was, like, quite upset of having to leave the U.S. Like, I didn't actually really want to leave the U.S. I just, like, I wanted to be a journalist, like, you know, with capital J. I didn't want to necessarily be working in, like, a production company and I couldn't really stay in the U.S. very easily and do that. So yeah, I spent maybe like five months kind of in and around Prince Rupert. And during that time, I got one of my first magazine assignments, which was that grizzly bear trophy hunting was coming to an end in British Columbia. It was one of the only places left where you could still hunt grizzly bears. Um, and so the Walrus Magazine in Canada assigned me to do that story. And so I was reporting from... The First Nations, I was meeting with trophy hunters, with bear advocates um, about that issue and kind of that was, yeah, that, that was my my main reason for being up there in the end. And then I was almost like, I was pretty close to like leaving journalism by the end of that year. I just like, I had no money left. I was like starting out as a freelancer was quite difficult. And then I actually got an award from Thomson Reuters Foundation for a story that I'd done on maggot farming for agriculture <laughs> feed <laughs> and it was like enough money like it was a pretty good like financial reward that came with it that it like basically kept me in journalism it like turned things around for me so yes forever grateful for that wow and did you stay in uh 
Prince Rupert, you said, after that? I did not. My car, my car was like breaking down. It broke down in the Nass Valley, which is like this volcanic ash valley uh, in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and I like had to give it to like this like Yugoslavian man, like and like basically move my stuff into a storage unit. But to do that, I had to get out of Prince Rupert because it was just it was so remote. So I like dragged my like barely functioning car onto a ferry went down the coast of British Columbia, got to Vancouver Island, where I got rid of my car to the Yugoslavian man, <laughs> moved all of my belongings into a rental car, and then drove another five hours to get to Victoria. And then I moved everything into a storage unit and was kind of like, okay, like what now? And that's when I started to look internationally. Wow. Yeah, that's quite the precarious situation. Uh, what, what did happen then? So I guess just to go back a few years, so when I, when I first moved to Boulder, I started noticing that there were a lot of issues happening with black bears in town. And I'd spent some time in Banff National Park. I'd seen that a lot of the kind of residential areas near there, they all used bear-resistant trash bins. But in Boulder, there were like bears getting into trash cans and alleyways every single night. Colorado Parks and Wildlife had begun killing quite a few of these like nuisance bears and there was a movement afoot to basically get the city to start also using these bear-resistant trash cans, which, if approved, Boulder would be like the first city of its size to do something like that in the U.S. And so I had had to choose a master's project. I decided to look at, like, black bear-human conflict over trash management across the western U.S. Um, for those <laughs> two years. I basically went to a bunch of really pretty places and took photos of garbage cans. <laughs> <laughs> I went to, um, I was in Aspen, I was in Lake Tahoe, I was in Banff. So again, like beautiful scenic places. And I was like, you know, kind of like mucking around in garbage. But so Boulder did pass this issue. Like on the weekends, I would hang out. There was this group of people in town called the Boulder Bear Sitters. They were like this citizens group of volunteers who whenever bears came down into town, often with their cubs, these people would like stake out under the trees where the bears were sleeping to prevent people from getting close to them and like have, having conflict and then they'd wait for the bears to safely leave at night. So I would like hang out with these people. I would like volunteer with fruit pickers who would like try and strip the apple trees bare during the fall because otherwise the bears came in and got into trouble. So that was kind of like the two years that I spent was reporting on bears for my master's thesis. And then I kind of, when I went to High Country News, I'd done some reporting on the Yellowstone grizzly bear because that was up for delisting from the Endangered Species Act. I had the grizzly bear trophy hunting up in Prince Rupert. And so something else happened in the fall of 2017, which was when I was kind of up in Prince Rupert, was that I'd gone to the Society of Environmental Journalists Conference in Pittsburgh that year. And they had a session, which I was like a book pitch slam. So basically you had like two minutes to pitch, elevator pitch style, like your idea for a book. I'd kind of been thinking about like, oh, like, would I want to write a book about bears? I've done a bunch of bear reporting. I couldn't really find the book that I wanted to read about, like, the world's eight bears. I mean, most people know, like, they know polar bears, they know brown bears, they know black bears, but, like, there were five other species that I thought, like, really hadn't gotten that much attention. Um, and so I kind of think I spent, like, <laughs> I spent maybe, like, 20 minutes in the hallway, like, writing up a little paragraph about a book where I'm like, bears, there's eight of them. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, it wasn't, I don't think it was, like, overly well thought out, but I was like, oh, I'll try, you know, just bringing it up. And so basically, like the conference, it, they'd assembled this panel of book editors from across the US. And one of them was Matt Wyland at Norton. And so I like stood up, I read my little like two minute bear blurb. 
and he loved it. And then like later at the conference, he like, you know, found me and was like, Bears, I love it. Like, can you can you write a full proposal for me? And he like gave me a bunch of like books that he like had that he thought could be a useful example. And so I was like, okay, like, yeah, sure. <laughs> but again, like living in my car, <laughs> like up in Prince Rupert, wasn't really sure where to go from there. I went back to Michael Cotis, who I mentioned earlier, and he connected me with his agent. And he's like, you should get an agent first. Like if you're going to write a proposal, like you want to go the agent route. So basically for the next six months after I'd left Victoria, or after, sorry, after I'd left Prince Rupert and had landed in Victoria and was kind of like, I don't know, I was kind of like bumming around. I was in Iceland, I went to Svalbard, I was in China, which I can get back to, but I was working on this book proposal about a book that would essentially look at the crises facing the world's eight remaining bear species and kind of using each bear as a narrative vehicle to explore a different environmental issue. Gotcha. And yeah, I mean, so you had put all your stuff in storage. I mean, practically living wise, how do you make something like that happen? You know, travel around the world when uh, you're broke, I guess, is the short way to put it. <laughs> Very good question. <laughs> yeah. So basically, I, I was paying $100 Canadian a month for the storage unit. And I basically just like I couldn't afford to like travel and pay rent somewhere. Right. And I think I, I give that advice to a lot of people, which is like, try and live as cheaply as you can. And so I kind of like moved everything that like mattered into like a 60 gallon backpack. (laughs) And I began traveling and I stayed in hostels and I was getting magazine assignments to try and like basically just cobble things together. I remember one particularly devastating moment was that I like my MacBook was breaking down. I like finally had saved up enough money to get a new MacBook. And then I was like mid proposal writing and I knocked over a cup of coffee and like my my computer like literally like did the like sparking fritzy thing and I was like you know no (laughs) my proposal like lost a huge chunk of my proposal had to get a new computer had no money but I you know I think you know I, I would stay with friends when I was traveling I again was like just living as cheaply as I possibly could and once I kind of left North America like you know China as I'm sure you're familiar like things are a lot cheaper there if you're going through like Southeast Asia like things are cheap so you can afford to like build up your portfolio and write without making like a ton of money right yeah wow but still I mean that's a ballsy move to not have a lot of money and, and be in foreign countries. I've been there and it's a bit uh, nerve wracking. My parents were not happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Wow. And lay it on us. How does a, the book process work in terms of, you know, you found an agent, you know, did you get an advance? Did they give you any money? Did they, how, how does the actual process of getting a book deal work? Yeah. I mean, it's long. So I talked to Matt Weiland at the conference and that was like the end of 2017. And then by the summer, I'd kind of finished a proposal and I started talking to agents. I then signed with an agent probably a couple months after that. We worked on the proposal together to get it into like final shape. And then she took it to auctions, which means like you have several publishers bidding on your book. And I think like Penguin came in and Norton Matt at Norton came back and that was kind of a tough decision because I was like, oh, like, you know, everyone knows Penguin, right? Like, it's the one publisher that people know. But I felt like Matt, he had such, like, a shared vision for the book, and he was so, like, eloquent and gracious and kind, and I was just like, this is, like, the person who I want to work on the book with. Some of my favorite books were Norton books. Um, David Quammen's Spillover, I was, like, a big fan of, like, their, how they do environmental nonfiction. So basically, I think between like my first meeting with Matt and signing with Norton was about a year long process. 
And then they give you a chunk of your advance. They, they split the advance into like three chunks, right? So it's like an advance, like quotation marks. <laughs> you get like a small chunk of that to begin. And then you get like the next chunk upon the submission of the first draft, which in that case was like years later. And I'm still waiting for my third chunk, which is upon publication this summer. <laughs> wow. So yeah, you have like a very small pot of money to basically, if, especially if you've pitched like an ambitious book in terms of travel you have a very small pot of money to like operate with so that was kind of where I started applying to grants I was applying to fellowships I was trying to get magazines to send me places where the bears were so that I could like do extra reporting but like you know the flights were covered essentially and then I would stay in you know hostels um so yeah that's kind of a quick rundown of how the book process worked for me I think that like I was quite lucky in that like I already had interest before I even wrote the proposal so it wasn't like I think there's a lot of people who like they labor away on a proposal for years. And because I had people approaching me about books beyond just Matt, but I kind of knew that there was interest and I had a really supportive agent and that whole process actually was like really smooth for me. Yeah, that's great. And then in terms of reporting the book, the concept was eight bears, you know, where they're located. (laughs) How... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> how did you order things or how did you approach it? Were you like, oh, I'm going to spend a month on each bear? Or w- was there any structure going into how you plan to tackle this? Yeah, I mean, basically bear by bear, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a very, it's, it is a very like simplistic format in some ways. I was, I, was, I was a little resistant at first to the title of Eight Bears because I was like, this sounds like snakes on a plane. Like, we're just saying like, what the <laughs> book is. Uh, over time, it grew on me. I think Matt was like, no, it's like the book Four Fish. I was like, okay. But yeah, I think, I mean, that, that was kind of like where I think finding an editor who like shared your vision was really important because I'd had other editors. They wanted to like frame it where you would have multiple bears per chapter, but it would be around like the environmental issue versus like moving through the book bear by bear. And in terms of like the order and like the reporting, like it was just kind of like as it happened. So China was the first place that I went. And that was because a magazine, the Air Canada in-flight magazine, you know, those days, <laughs> the heyday of of magazines sent me to China to do a travel piece about panda tourism. And the editor was really kind. She knew that I wanted to do this book. And so she was like, I'll get, we'll get you to China and like, feel free to just tack on things afterwards. And you can like do this, you know, fluffy, quite literally story for us. And then you can like stay and do more reporting. And I was like, that's great. So I did that. I was in China for just over a month reporting on pandas. <laughs> Yeah, it was like, who who would pay for a, a flight to China that's expensive, but it's an in-flight magazine, obviously, they can put you on a plane. Exactly. And Air Canada went to Sichuan, <laughs> so they wanted to, like, promote that. Wow. So, yeah, I had a really fabulous time reporting on pandas. This was before the book was actually even sold. I was still working on my proposal during the stage, but I was kind of gathering string on pandas at that time. And then in January 2019, I got a grant from National Geographic to go and report on sloth bears in India. So I went there for a couple months and that covered the sloth bear chapter. Um, I wrote a short piece. Anything in particular? Oh, go go for it. That National Geographic wanted to know. (laughs) Did you want some fun sloth bear facts? Sure. Uh, Yeah, I wrote a short story for them. But basically, sloth bears are the world's like deadliest bear. So I was looking at Hmm. um, human wildlife conflict, you know, as it relates to habitat loss with sloth bears you know they're quite aggressive bears but also they just live near like a ton of people right you know polar bears are also aggressive but they're not living alongside like a billion people where sloth bears are in many cases so I was kind of traveling through rural villages speaking with people who'd 
been mauled by these bears. Often they would be mauled while they were gathering, you know, mob flowers, which they used to make liquor. They'd be gathering firewood, tendu leaves for cigarettes, and they'd be kind of distracted looking at the ground. A bear would also be there. These bears fight tigers. Like, that's how aggressive they are. And they often win. Wow. So I saw a lot of really, you know, horrific injuries. And even like, I mean, we went to one village and we were, at, we were, we were trying to find someone who'd been mauled years earlier and they're like oh she's in the hospital and then we had to you know it took a minute of confusion and it was like oh no someone else was mauled yesterday like that's how frequent these attacks are and often these bears will like attack four people at once too so they they attack large groups so yeah i spent a couple months with with nat geo's support doing that and a lot of that also became the book chapter the other thing that i did too and i'm sure you're you know very used to doing this is i tagged along with scientists right like there's a group that's like the international bear biologists. <laughs> so you can kind of find like the scientific expert for each bear. And I'd like email them. I'd be like, do you have any field work coming up? Can I come with you? So a lot of the book is reported through these like sloth bear expert group or like the spectacle bear expert group. And that's who I went into the field with to learn more about the bears. I was going to ask, I mean, I've lived in China for a while. You I can't really avoid pandas. Uh, they're a big deal. Um, I've been to the, you know, Chengdu Great Panda Research Center or whatever it's called. Yeah. Maybe even twice. I can't remember. But Jealous. <laughs> don't they tell you that, like, pandas, they're like, they're not really bears. They're like, you know, they're stopped evolving a long time ago. I can't quite remember the exact spiel on it, but are panda bears really bears? I feel like you're conflating pandas with red pandas, or what China calls the lesser panda. Okay. Pandas are actually the OG bear. They are the world's oldest bear in terms of like lineage. Um, I think they go back to like six million years. Pandas are very much bears, but that is a common misconception. Like whenever I meet someone, they're always like, pandas aren't bears. I'm like, no, they are bears. The thing, yeah, about them stopping evolving sounds like it was right. I think it's because, yeah, the people are like, the, right, like they're kind of inept. You know, if, you, if the panda was left to its own devices, it would probably be, be extinct. Um, but fortunately, China is very invested in making sure that that doesn't happen. So, yeah, no, I do. The Chengdu base is, it's such a, such a wild air, <laughs> such a wild air. And the tourists, I think, like, you know, it gets nearly as many as like Disneyland who visit each year and they breed the bears there. And it's, there's quite a few bases like that around Sichuan where you can go. I volunteered as a panda keeper for the day. Oh, um, nice. So I got to like, go into the enclosures and, you know, clean out panda poo. You're right about the, the, I'm mixing it up with the red panda, which is like a relative of a raccoon, but not really a bear or something like that. Yeah. I really love the fact that China calls them like lesser panda and they have like a kind of crappier area in terms of the, in the panda base, right? Like no one cares about these little, little red pandas. I mean, it's, it's a thing for the tourists. Like, did I pay money to hold a red panda? Yes, I did. <laughs> and they're not going to let you hold the real pandas. They're too precious. I think you can, if you pay a lot more money. You, but, we uh, were offered that you can, no, you can, you can sit next to one and like put your arm around it. I think it was, um, I have this detail in my book, it was like 200 US dollars for like five minutes to like get your photo taken, like cuddling a panda. <laughs> um, but I think they stopped doing that because a panda bit someone on the ear. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I mean, that when I was a student, like $200, I was like, forget about it. That's not happening. I'll pay whatever, <laughs> 20 bucks to hold this red panda. Not, not on the journalist salary. We're not hugging pandas. <laughs> But cool, yeah. And it sounds like you front-loaded the most difficult bears first in terms of, you know, the most far-flung places. And then did you come closer to home after that? And do the North American bears last? 
So no, so after India, I went to Vietnam and that was just using book advance money. And I started reporting on Bear Bile, which is probably actually the most difficult bit, I would say. China has a large Bear Bile industry for pharmaceuticals as well, but that's like, you know, you're not reporting on that. It's too closed off and it's too dangerous to report on that. Vietnam is more open. So basically Bear Bile, for those who don't know, is it's an extract that comes, I mean, it's bile. We have bile too. We actually have some of the same chemical properties that comes in what is technically ursodeoxycholic acid, I believe is the word, deoxycholic acid. And uh, for a long time in traditional Chinese medicine, they've killed bears and taken their whole gallbladders out to use. Um, people ingest it, they mix it into wine. You know, it helps with things like hangovers, sex drives, what have you, <laughs> headaches. But then in the 1980s, it was like North Korean scientists began developing a method where you could keep bears alive and extract the bile from the galls of living bears uh, through catheters and various kind of torturous contraptions. And this huge industry came up around bear bile. And China is a stronghold of it. But other countries like Vietnam, like Laos, they also have this. And the bear species that are used for that are moon bears, or also known as the Asiatic black bear, and sun bears to a lesser extent. And so I wanted to get into these bear bile farms in Vietnam to see what was happening. The main issue is that bears cannot be bred. They're not breeding these bears for the farms. They're taking them from the wild. So you're having a significant impact on wild populations at the same time as obviously like extreme animal welfare issues um, that you know is depleting Southeast Asia of its bears and kind of giving them this this lifetime of, of pain and misery all for a product that actually doesn't sell for that much. Like it's not like rhino horn. It's not like tiger penis. You're not getting like thousands of dollars. Like it's a few dollars and it's just like huh. a point of pride at this point. And so my next kind of goal was to kind of get onto these, onto these farms around Hanoi and see what was happening to bears there. And uh, did they say, come on in, like report on our bear torture? As they always do. <laughs> they they did not, but it actually was not that hard to find. So these like unlike China where it's a really large operation, there's this one little district um called Fukso near Hanoi where a lot of these the country's remaining bile bears are, and they're actually in pretty public facing like cages. So you can go through this town, you can see like I went to this one like quotation mark farm. They had twenty-eight moon bears in like these wrought iron cages facing the sidewalk. And like no one really blinks an eye. It's like these are just like their bears. Like the you know the bears are showing like stress behavior. They're moaning. They're like swaying back and forth. They're growling. And these people will try and like sell you bile. I went with a like a fixer, and you know she kind of was like, oh like we're interested in like the bear bile market. And like they're like, yeah sure. Like you want some bile? Like this is how many bears we have. This is when we harvest the bile. Actually, I should say some of them pretend like they don't take the bile. They pretend like they are keeping the bears as pets, like which is allowed in Vietnam still. <laughs> so they're like, oh, like we have 28 bears, but like they're pets, which, you know, obviously that's not the case. But no, it was pretty open. You know, when I was there, it was this one little area, like no one had ever surrendered a bear to a sanctuary. There's a big movement afoot in Vietnam to try and get every single remaining bile bear into sanctuary. It was by the end of 2022, covid derailed those efforts but within the next year or two they're trying to rescue every single bear in the country but this one little this one little neighborhood basically like no one had ever given up their bear and just after i left the first bear farmer surrendered his bear to sanctuary and now they've taken a bunch more out and they've moved them to like these these grassy oases in northern vietnam so there's some hope there 
Yeah, wow. That's uh, pretty grisly. Good, good, good bear pun. But I can't help with the bear puns. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's uh, terrible. So that was the portion on moon bears, I guess it gets a lot into that. And sun bears, yep. And then I and then I went back to then I went back to North America. Gotcha. By this point, I imagine you've done the book proposal, which is what like I used to work at a literary agency a long time ago. It's like what a, a table of contents, a, a couple chapters, and uh, just enough to sell the book, right? Yep. Yeah, the book had sold by the time that I was... So right before I went to India, I, I'd sold the book. So India, Vietnam, and everything that followed. I then... Oh, I guess I went back... To, I forgot I went to... <laughs> I went to Peru and Ecuador after Vietnam to do the Spectacled Bear or the Andean Bear as well. Um, so by the time I was doing that travel, I had part of the advance to fund that, that leg of the book. And uh, you go to Peru then before you go back to North America? Yes. <laughs> okay. How, yeah. how was that? It was good. It was good. So the bears there being, um, this is a little closer to home for you. Um, I know we've talked about cloud forests and the impacts on cloud forests quite a bit. But the spectacled bear or the Andean bear lives in the country's cloud forests all the way up to the paramos, like the kind of grassland areas. And they're facing habitat loss from agriculture, but also some concerns about climate change, which is shifting where the cloud forests are and scientists don't know why these bears they won't go down into the amazon like they don't want to drop further down in altitude which they should because like there's tons of food there so the scientists that i went with were trying to figure out why these bears basically like weren't utilizing the amazon and what climate change could mean for the bears future if its habitat in the cloud forest continues to shrink I mean, I am curious, you said, I looked at, you know, the first few pages of the book and like some of the description of it. And, you know, it says, oh, there's only eight bear species left. And I'm like, is that a little? Were there a lot more bear species before? Does the book get into that at all? Yeah, it does. I mean, there there were far more bears. I mean, there's, I don't think there's ever been like hundreds of bears, but you had cave bears, you had the short-faced bear clan or the short-faced bears, which the spectacled bear is like the last remaining member of that family. But um, during like the Pleistocene, there were a lot more bears. And then, you know, it's kind of thought that humans, hunter-gatherers, probably pushed a lot of those species to extinction. But I think part of the reason that I was like attracted to doing this book was that eight is like a very manageable number for a book, right? Like if you think of, <laughs> yeah. if you think of canines, if you think of felines, like there's, you know, monkeys, there's like hundreds of them, right? Like you can't ever do like an all-encompassing like monkey book. But like, eight bear like eight is like the perfect number for chapters it's really manageable it's kind of surprising i mean it's both ways right like people are surprised that there's more than just polar bears black bears brown bears pandas most people think there's only four but at the same time people are surprised when they're like oh like there's only like eight bears left so it was it was just a very like again it kind of lent itself i think to like this style of book and in in peru did you follow around a scientist or how do you go about that part I did. I met up with Russ Van Horn, who works for San Diego Zoo, and he's like the Andean bear expert <laughs> group person. And so he was going to be going down to a place called Waycatcha Biological Station, which is up in the cloud forest. Really, really beautiful spot. Lots of birders go there to like photograph hummingbirds. It's like a really biodiverse place um, at a really high altitude. And so he allowed me to tag along with him. He was with a bunch of grad students. They were checking their camera traps to see if they could find bears at different elevations. And he's kind of the person who's who's leading that effort. He was quite fun too because like we talked more about like the mythology around Andean bears. Respect. I mean, sorry, I'm like moving between Andean bear and spectacled bear, but it's 
the same species um, gotcha. and kind of the <laughs> the some of like the mythology like they have like this thing called the akuku i don't know if you've ever heard of it um no. which in some of these like indigenous quechua cultures is like this half bear half man figure that like steals women away there's festivals where people dress up as the akuku and like climb glaciers so there was a really interesting like i guess kind of anthropology angle to that as well yeah cool Okay. And then, yeah, I guess, you know, we're going through the book. I hope I'm not spoiling too much, but <laughs> why not? We keep going. Um, so then you go back to, to North America and you have, what, three more bears to knock out there? Yeah, yeah. Three more bears. I mean, I'd done some, so I'd, I'd been in Churchill, Manitoba a few times for polar bears intermixed with all of these trips. So like, it's not a, it's not a totally like, chronological order, um, but I'd spent some sure. time up in kind of this the subarctic town uh, with one of the southernmost polar bear populations looking at, of course, you know, they're the icon of climate change. I'm sure you've written polar bear stories and the bears around Churchill or Southern Hudson Bay or Western Hudson Bay, rather. They're projected to be one of the first groups of polar bears to go extinct because of climate change and, and the loss of sea ice, which, which they hunt from. So I'd gone with some scientists, Andy Desrochers, Jeff York, Polar Bears International, the people who are kind of like the um, Goliaths of polar bear research. And, you know, we saw bears being hazed away from town. I'd interviewed someone who'd been attacked by a polar bear in Churchill. It's, it's really, I mean, even just in like the past five years, I think the population's dropped down from 800 to like 600 bears again. Like it's plummeting pretty quickly. And it's also like, you know, the main area for polar bear tourism too, right? Like you have these giant kind of Hummer-like school bus vehicles that go out on the tundra that bring wealthy tourists, lots of like oil tycoons, to be honest, <laughs> people from all over the world who want to come, they want to come see the polar bear before it disappears. And I, so I did that. I did the polar bear reporting. I then went to Yosemite was like my final stop. I went to California. I went back to like my OG interest, which was um, <laughs> black bears and garbage, of course. <laughs> and Yosemite was like this really interesting example because they had basically over a century developed this population of black bears that was totally dependent on human food and they had turned it into a source of entertainment in like the early 1900s they had like bear shows where they had put like bleachers up around like dump sites and tourists would come to watch the bears eating they basically just like created total chaos there was like an article in the san francisco chronicle that was like back in the day visiting yosemite was a descent into bear mayhem like that's how bad things were <laughs> Hundreds of cars were being broken into for food. Tons of bears were being killed. Um, they were in the campsites. Like when they closed the dumps, the bears moved into campsites. Up until like, you know, kind of the 2000s, like the Yosemite was just like this total, um, total menagerie mayhem, basically, with, with black bears and campers. And so I basically went to Yosemite to talk to people to learn about how Yosemite turned things around and actually became kind of a global model for human wildlife coexistence. Okay, cool. And I think that just leaves grizzlies, or did you do those already? This is this is a tricky question, Jake. So I had <laughs> done some reporting around Yellowstone. And so at this point, we are now, we are reaching like December 2019. I had planned to go back and brush up my reporting on Yellowstone grizzlies, which, which I'd done in 2015. I was planning to go in like spring 2020 uh, to go back to Yellowstone. I think we all know what happened in spring 2020. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I basically had to rely on some of my earlier reporting and doing a bunch of phone reporting during COVID to finish off my grizzly bear chapter, sadly. 
yeah, that was a bit of a, a painful one. You know, luck. I was very lucky in the timing. Like I basically finished, you know, most of the bears and I just had a little bit left because I know there were a lot of people who were working on books during COVID where like it completely derailed their projects because you couldn't travel anywhere for almost two years. But I'd kind of been planning on using most of 2020 to write the book. And in that way, it was like very serendipitous. And I was very, very lucky to basically just hunker down, like no distractions, no FOMO, and just write for a year and a half. But yeah, so the grizzly bear was a little, or brown, I should say brown bear because grizzly is a subspecies of bear. (laughs) But yeah, but no, so I, I I was basically pulling on previous reporting that I'd done and just trying to update it with, with phone calls. Gotcha. And yeah, no, no better way to write than to be trapped inside. Than a global pandemic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. And how was the writing? I mean, was it torturous? Was it flow pretty easy? How'd it go? I'd say torturous. And I'm not sure how you are, but like I got into journalism where I, I really liked writing more than reporting. Initially, I was, again, I was like super shy. I like reporting and speaking to people was something that I really had to work at getting over, but I completely dreaded it. And then at some point that kind of switched. And I think I'm still at this point in my career where like I really love reporting and speaking with sources and like being out in the field and like coming up with ideas compared with the writing aspect of journalism. So for me, like, reporting the book while it was stressful and it was really long days and it was emotionally and financially taxing. Writing was like this very isolating process filled with like a lot of self-doubt. I'd never, you know, I'd never written a book before. I hadn't done something that was like a hundred thousand words and it became, um, you know, I'd kind of just like, I went to a co-working space. I would like get there at seven in the morning. I would like have my coffee. I'd try and write like a thousand, 500 to a thousand words per day the next day, I would like rewrite what I did the previous day, plus an additional 500 words. Um, and that was kind of just like my life, like, you know, six days a week for a year and a half. But no, I mean, I think like when I, when I submitted my first manuscript, I was like, they're going to reject this. It's so bad. Um, and like, no one was like really reading the book. Like I was kind of just in my own headspace. See, I found the writing aspect like <laughs> very difficult, which is, you know, kind of partially led to why I joined Reuters because I was like, ooh, a wire, like 400 words max, you know, um, <laughs> after doing like 100,000, I was like, I do not want to do like this, this long of long form for a very long time again. So yeah, that's how I felt. So it took all told it took a year and a half to write one draft or how? Yeah, it was about a year and a half for the first draft. And then like another like three months, I think there were three, the edits weren't super heavy. I think there were about three rounds of edits on it, tweaking. There wasn't, there was no major restructure. Like I've had friends who's, you know, they've submitted their book and it's been like a massive retooling. I was quite lucky. Matt like really loved the structure. He had like pretty nice things to say. We kind of finessed some things. Um, He liked the order that I put the bears, the order of the bears from how I'd envision it to like it didn't change at all which I was a little surprised by that he like liked that order so yeah it was about probably a year and a half the first draft and then maybe about another let's see I submitted July 2021 yeah and about another six months for like the final maybe and then you do fact checking you hire fact checkers that you pay as well (laughs) books don't come with a fact checking budget um oh I didn't know that you have to do like all the annotations, um, which that took like months to do. Like everything in your book has to have like a link to where it's from, basically, for nonfiction. So basically, like between now working at Reuters on the weekends, I've often, you know, kind of done additional book related tasks for the last year. A lot of work. And 
So you're, I mean, we're about the same age, you know, graduate during the financial crisis. By this point, you've been, you know, out of school for a decade. Most of that, you know, pretty financially precarious, like doing big things, but kind of just getting by. I don't know about you, but I look back at me when I was younger and I'm like, that looks like exhausting. I have no idea how I did it. (laughs) How did you, how do you feel looking back on it? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I feel, I feel proud of being able to have made it from like, London, Canada to London, UK. (laughs) Definitely a step up. Um, I think that like by the end of reporting, reporting the book, I was like quite burnt out. You know, it's like, I think I'd calculated that I'd slept in like 102 different beds one year. Like that's basically moving every three days. I was, I was so exhausted. You know, I was getting into my thirties. I was having back pain. I think all of those things are very true. And then I landed at Reuters, which has been, you know, it's been a nice change of pace from that kind of constant hustle. But I also think that like, I think a lot of people should try freelancing and like early in their career, because I don't think that you want to do it later. And I think you do learn, you learn how to hustle quite hard when you're freelancing and like being very scrappy and coming up with ideas and like how to build relationships, because that's what freelancing depends on. So I think like, in that way, I'm glad that I kind of initially went directly into freelancing that I I think it would be hard to do that now because you get comfortable, you're used to a paycheck, you're used to benefits. Switching to freelancing is a lot harder the older you get and the more responsibility you take on. I think it was a really great way to kind of spend like my mid to late 20s working on a book, finding different stories. I wanted to work, you know, as a freelance foreign correspondent on the environmental beat. Bears were a really nice avenue to do that through. They took me to obviously some really beautiful and interesting places whenever I'd go there, like I wouldn't just be reporting the book. I would do other stories as well, which I, which I didn't mention, but I would, you know, look for, for example, when I was in Peru, like they had this huge project going on where they had this like giant curtain strung up in the canopy to basically mimic what would happen if the clouds disappeared and how the forest would change. So I did a story for like PRI about that. I did stories about tigers potentially getting COVID in India, <laughs> the New York Times. Like I, I, I did a lot of like I just like I loved the ability to like travel to different places and find really interesting people doing really interesting things. And then scientists often different threats facing the natural world and biodiversity. So, yeah, I'm I'm happy that I like basically got that experience, especially when once COVID hit. I was so glad that I had like been out in the world for quite a few years before that happened. So I do recommend like, you know, maybe some freelancing hardship to (laughs) to start off. Sure. Yeah. No, that you're you're right. It's good. It's a good way to learn a lot. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I never freelanced that much in my career, but uh, there were a couple of times, and uh, I don't know. <laughs> like I remember having to borrow money from friends a couple times, and like waiting yeah. for like paychecks to clear from certain things you had written. And uh, I feel like I did it for a year or two, and. By the end of that, I was like, okay, I'm kind of maybe starting to figure this out that I could maybe like get by on this, but then I just got a job. So, um, (laughs) but learned a lot. And what was I going to say? Oh, so how did uh, Reuters get on your radar? How did you end up applying, getting the job? Tell us, tell us, we want to know the, you know, how this stuff actually works in practice. (laughs) My colleague wants to know the behind the scenes. Yeah, sure. Um, so I had during my freelance, and, and this is this is the thing with freelancing too. Like you obviously meet a lot of people, and you freelance for a lot of different outlets. And so, one of the people that I had freelanced for at a different publication was hired by Reuters. She was familiar with my work. We'd served on the board of the Society of Environmental Journalists together for a few years. 
I think too, like the environmental journalism scene is like, it's a very small niche, especially in the US. Like everyone kind of knows everyone. So she had asked for me to apply to the job. And then it was like, you know, the hiring process, I think, was like six months long in the end, which, which was actually fine because I was still working on the books. So I was like, just provided this like kind of drags out and I can finish, mm-hmm. finish book edits, then I would be happy to join. But yeah, I mean, I hadn't, it wasn't necessarily like, I wasn't like desperate for a job. I and mean, I think that's a common like m- misconception about freelancers is like, oh, you're freelancing because you can't get a full-time job. I was pretty happy freelancing, but I also felt like I kind of done everything that I wanted to do about with freelancing. Like I, I, I knew how to do it. And I also felt, um, I think there's some like legitimacy issues sometimes with freelancing. People tend to not take your work as seriously or kind of, you know, freelancing can mean a lot of different things. It can mean that you write one article a year and you're kind of you know living off a trust fund right. or that you're hustling and writing 20 stories a month. And I was definitely towards the latter option there. <laughs> sure. But it was still, sometimes I felt like it was a bit difficult to like, because I hadn't had much newsroom experience. You know, I wanted to have a different challenge. I wanted to have colleagues, you know, like you. <laughs> um, and I wanted to, yeah, I just wanted to have like, I guess that experience on my resume at least and feeling like, oh, like I know what it like is like to work with a large agency beyond just kind of being by myself with my backpack in far flung places chasing bears. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So, yeah, and it sounds like you were asked to apply, so it's not like you were going out applying to everything in sight. Exactly. As a holdout. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. And, uh, I mean, that gets us pretty close to present, but I'll ask, uh, you know, how how have things been since joining Reuters? And and I don't mean that as a loaded question since I work (laughs) with you, but, you know, it's what I would ask anybody. Like, how how have things been? uh, Any highlights since then? Yeah. I mean, besides the colleagues, of course, um, (laughs) it's been, it's been good. It's been definitely a learning curve. I think also just switching. I basically did like the longest long form you could possibly do. And then I switched to like the shortest short form (laughs) that you could basically do. So it's been like quite fun to learn how to write for a wire and like kind of the, you know, the rigidity on word counts and all of that and writing style. We got to go to COP to cover Sharm El Sheikh, Climate COP, and then I also went to Biodiversity COP um, last year. So it was a lot of, a lot of copping. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think too, like, I mean, it definitely like has that feeling of like, you know, people know what Reuters is, unless they call it Reuters, which they often right. do. Right, yeah. <laughs> I get that. But, but having like that, you know, that recognition, I guess, and being able to develop more on the beat. The other thing too is like, that I think people don't don't always appreciate is the amount of time you have on a story. Like when you're freelancing, you're kind of cautious of like how much digging you're doing, how many phone calls you're making, because like that affects your hourly rate, right? So like you might do like four interviews for a story and you're like, that's all I can really afford to do. I need to move on to the next thing. And when you're at a place like Reuters, you have the opportunity to keep calling people, to keep going deeper on a story, to investigate things. And I think like that experience has been really really precious and valuable to have that that time to spend with sources and with a story and I didn't have that before yeah for sure I was gonna add I I mean I think the other thing too that you and I have both faced is like the climate crisis has been like a bit tricky to cover the past few years because you had the COVID crisis and now you have Ukraine and I think like there is a bit of challenge with that in terms of allotment of resources and attention when you have like these you know more immediate crises facing the world but like climate you know as scientists will say like that is like the biggest but like more slowly unfolding 
crisis that is the background to everything else. And same with, you know, spillover and zoonotic diseases too, right? Like everything kind of boils down to the environment in many ways. Yeah, for sure. It is like you said, I've not been doing environment or climate as long as you have. And I would say that it has ramped up a lot, even just since I started doing environment stuff in like 2017, 2018. It's kind of crazy how fast things have kind of broken through to another level. And like, there's more broad consciousness about it. It's become kind of a more appealing beat to have. And I mean, that's interesting to think about. So even if we're competing against Ukraine and stuff, I feel like it is kind of finally getting the level of attention it deserves. I don't know. Do you feel vindicated by that at all? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think, I think it's like a hard hitter. It's like a hard hitting beat now. Right. And I think, you know, a decade ago it was kind of dismissed as like, oh, you're not covering conflict. Or you're not covering like politics. Like who cares about the environment? And now like people see how like interwoven the environment is with those issues. And I think there's a lot of really interesting reporting to be done in the space of climate change and geopolitics and diplomacy. And I also feel quite like lucky and grateful that I was like slightly ahead of the curve in some ways on environmental journalism. Like, as I mentioned, like when I went to school, people were not interested in environmental reporting. I would go to like the Society of Environmental Journalism conferences and, you know, there was like maybe like five people there who were under the age of 30. Like it was very much like older newspaper reporters who'd been covering like pollution issues in their small towns but it was not like anything close to what it is now so I guess yeah like vindicated but also grateful that I've been able to be on this beat you know for about a decade and seen some really interesting things happen albeit not much progress on cutting emissions but it's a whole other thing (laughs) yeah cool I guess then to look to the future you're in the final stretch on your book what's going to happen with it when's it coming out and what do you have planned around it It comes out July 11th in North America and August 25th in the UK. Yeah, basically just putting finishing touches on trying to like arrange a small book tour back in the US, doing some gigs in Colorado and Montana where the bears are, and then back up into Canada to visit some friends and family and do some book events there. It's been interesting because no one had really like read the book who was kind of a dispassionate reviewer, like everyone who'd read the book knew me. So you're kind of, I'm at the point now where like the reviews are starting to come in from people who do not know me, complete strangers. It's a little nerve wracking <laughs> to have that unbiased um, <laughs> honesty. Um, you've gotten some good reviews in like Publishers Weekly, right? Yeah, Publishers Weekly gave it a starred review, which was very nice. Some Kirkus called it gloomy, but I was kind of like, I think all of it. If it's an honest environmental work, you know, environmental reportage, then it's probably gloomy. You know, things aren't really going in the in the right direction there too much. Right. But no, yeah, I've gotten some really nice feedback so far. So just kind of planning for that. I don't think that I'll do a second book anytime soon, uh, but who knows? I think this kind of hits the quota for now. And yeah, excited to get it out in the world and have people learn more about bears and the issues facing biodiversity. Yeah, good reception so far. And I hope it does well. And uh, I'll say it in the intro, but I'll say it again here. Yeah, people should go check out your book if they want to hear more about bears. And, you know, I'm tempted to ask you what some of the takeaways and stuff are, but people should just go buy the book. So then next up, we usually talk about some stories, but we talked a lot about your book and a lot of the details of how you reported that. And so I think we've kind of covered that. 
Usually I do ask about a story that got away, and I'd be curious to know if you had anything. So a story that you wanted to do but couldn't do because, I don't know, you couldn't sell it, you couldn't finance the story, you couldn't get access. Is there anything that comes to mind about that? COVID definitely, you know, nixed some planned stories, but I think I'd like still be hopeful to eventually do them one day. Um, I think like, yeah, I I think there's a lot that I'd want to do in like China, right? Like there's a ton more with pandas and like getting access to pandas that I would have loved, but it's just so tricky, as you well know, to report there. Um, Getting like behind the scenes and like the breeding efforts would have been phenomenal, but uh, (laughs) I did manage to get an interview with the scientist in China. It took like two years of like sweet talking and like working connections to interview like the key scientist who's behind the captive breeding efforts in China. Um, his name's Jang Hemin. He's known as Papa Panda in China. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that was like a ton of work. But no, I don't think there's like necessarily one, one story where I'm like, oh darn, like, but maybe I'm just like too much of an optimist that I assume that one day I'll, I'll do them. Sure. No, but yeah, you don't want to put those ideas out there. if you And I don't, I don't want to give my scoops away. <laughs> right. Right. So anyway. Okay, cool. Well, in that case, I guess we'll move on to the next section. So next up is the lightning round. It's faster paced questions. Do you feel ready? Yes, I'm ready to go. So first up, I'd like to know if there's any publication in the area you cover. Sometimes it's regional, but in this case, climate and environment, but a publication that you think does particularly good work on, say, climate and environment that maybe everybody hasn't heard of that you'd like to shout out as doing a good job. I did mention earlier, I think High Country News Magazine covering the Western U.S. does a great job. I'd also say Manga Bay. I think a lot of people like in North America and like the Western world like haven't always heard of Manga Bay, but they do phenomenal work covering the issues facing tropical forests, more work in developing countries. They support a lot of local journalists. So, yeah, probably Manga Bay. Cool. Yeah, those are two good ones. And then what is a publication vaguely journalistic in nature that you read, listen to, or watch for fun? Yeah, I think that I I do read The Atlantic the most. I kind of don't like to like wind down with like, I don't read a lot of like environmental reporting in my spare time as much now. I think I prefer to find like areas that I'm not covering. So like I like to read Arthur Brooks, his writings on like happiness and community in The Atlantic I really like. I love Anne Applebaum's writings about Ukraine. I think she's done some really good work for The Atlantic those would be like the main things that I read and listen to, I guess. And then next up, is there any particular subject matter you geek out about that isn't related to your job? Well, it's kind of related to environment reporting, but I would say like urban design and like carless cities, like making cities more pedestrian friendly, I find really interesting and kind of like this revolt against like letting cars into like city centers, how to create more bike paths, how to basically like make cities more livable and more community oriented. I find like anything that's like reporting on, on that to be really interesting. Yeah. Which is, but I mean, there's obviously an environmental element to like getting rid of cars, (laughs) but I think like, you know, pedestrianizing areas I find quite, quite interesting. If you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? I would say Peter Hessler. I'm not sure if you know him. He was, or he still is kind of the New Yorker China correspondent, um, but he's left China But he wrote three books about his experience being in China kind of between the 90s and the 2000s. And through this, 
huge period of transformation for the country. He was stationed in Fuling in Sichuan with the Peace Corps in the late 90s. And he wrote his first book, River Town, about that experience. He's 100% like my favorite writer. I think he's incredibly talented and his writing is... Um, He's just, he's just quite smart. Like he will introduce an idea to you and you kind of forget about it. And then he brings the writing back around with an excellent, like nails the landing, bringing it back to the initial idea. But I really like love how he captures the changes in China through like just this one person teaching in this small city. And yeah, I would, you know, (laughs) trade my left arm to kind of be in China during that period. And, and, you know, having his eloquence and his eyes for things, I think that he, is a phenomenal correspondent. Yeah, yeah, I know Peter Hessler, not personally, but well, I mean, I would say that, you know, a lot of journalists, young journalists in China are trying to be (laughs) Peter Hessler. As they should. But it's like, (laughs) as they should. But I mean, he was there in such a unique time that it's kind of a fool's errand to even try. But yeah, he moved back to the U.S. and has been writing about not China stuff. He wrote a great piece a couple of few years ago about running He's expanded to do just random things for The New Yorker, which are equally good to uh, his stuff he did before, I found. In Rivertown, if memory serves, there is a scene with bears. He goes to like a weird circus thing um, in southern China. (laughs) I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, no, I I think it's hard to recreate. It's like it's more such being envious of like a time period, right? Like I think, as you just mentioned, like being in China now is not the same thing as being in that decade of tremendous upheaval and change and I think anyone who was there at that time was very lucky I was thinking about this earlier too like I feel like a lot of you know the media attention in the 2000s was like the war in Iraq Afghanistan but there was definitely like a small cohort of people who went to China instead and I think like in my in my opinion like that was like the place to be as a reporter to have experienced and witnessed that yeah and I mean that's what sucked me in when I went there as a student in 0708 and uh yeah, caught the tail end of the boom, and then uh, <laughs> a lot of whatever it is that's we're in right now there. <laughs> um, what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? Take more languages. <laughs> I know we've discussed this, but I, I studied French through the end of high school. I was pretty much fluent. And I don't think that I like fully understood like the value of speaking more languages to like the journalistic pathway. And I think that's something that... You know, when I mentioned I didn't really, I didn't really know any journalists. I didn't have entree to that world until I was much older. But I really wish that someone had told me to like keep up with languages. I took German. I took you know Latin, which was completely useless. Um, <laughs> and I, I really loved taking French. But then I like kind of get into like the first year class because it was full. So I was just like, oh, never mind. And that's like my biggest regret is like not continuing on with languages because I did love them and now I'm like you know I can speak some some French I've been taking like some Mandarin but I I definitely recommend like and and you're like, a perfect example of this like take as many languages as you possibly can if you want to get into journalism for sure and yeah it's uh, a lot easier to do when you're younger and have a lot of time and like yeah it's uh, it's hard to imagine like i've invested yeah. a lot up front in doing languages and it it gets hard when you're working full time and stuff yeah what is one thing that most people don't know about you i don't have my appendix <laughs> i don't i don't know it's, a, oh, it's wow. a very niche thing i i was like quite i think i mentioned that i was like very obsessed with diane fossey when i was a when i was a kid and she had had her appendix removed preemptively before she went to like the jungle, you know, to work with the gorillas. 
And when I was, oh. when I was, I did not get mine removed preemptively, <laughs> but when I was 16, it was like going to rupture. And I was like, oh my God, like this is a sign that I should be like Diane Fossey. <laughs> um so yeah i don't i don't have an appendix that's good whenever i like you know it's good if you're traveling to remote places apparently um i've heard actually some really harrowing chaotic stories of journalists and scientists like in borneo who like this one guy he worked with tim layman on like the birds of paradise stuff and he was like you know several days away from like a hospital and his appendix started to rupture and he very narrowly survived so yeah that's that is a fun Fun fact, good advice to young people as well. Learn a foreign language, get your appendix removed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hadn't heard that one before. But uh, yeah, now you have me nervous. Like uh, this will happen before this episode comes out. But uh, like going out in the d- jungle, like uh, like what what if that were to happen? Uh, you'll, you'll be fine, I'm um, sure. It's, yeah, take some Advil or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's good that, yeah, it sounds like they caught it before it did burst like so i've i know at least a couple of people who that's it's taken them by surprise yeah. and they have to um, rush to the hospital and uh yeah like uh I, if you go way back in the back catalog to the manga bay founder Rhett butler he talks about getting injured uh i think it was in the amazon and just being like trapped somewhere God. and like having a difficult time getting out it's like my worst fear to be honest i have like i'm not like i'm not too like anxious about like certain things but like being like having a medical issue like by myself somewhere like remote is like my it's my biggest yeah my biggest fear (laughs) what is your most embarrassing journalism related story so when i was at high country news magazine i had this assignment to go i was i was working on a story that was looking at um the push by the u.s government to have more people putting honey beehives on public lands up in like mountainous areas basically they were like worried you know they just wanted more like pollinators but there were issues of course with that because honeybees are an invasive species in the u.s there were a lot of conservation groups that were like how dare you push to have an invasive Hmm. species on public lands I found this like one guy who had a permit for a bunch of hives and colonies up on this mountain top and emailed him. He was like, for sure, like, let's go up and like, you can come up to the hives, take some photos. So I had like driven my rental car to like the base of the mountain, parked it there and then like got in his car. We drove like three hours up the mountain top on like, you know, very bad roads. And then we're about to get out near the hives and he was like, oh, you should change into the African bee suit because I'd never, I've never been stung by a bee. That's a good fun fact too. (laughs) And so he was like, like, they went in with like no protection, just like the face screen. But he was like, oh, because like, again, there's no medical assistance for miles. Like you have to wear like this giant African bee costume. So like I stood up like out of the car, I like changed my clothes, like got into this like you know, very, it was very hard to operate a camera and take notes with like the African bee suit on, just, you know, suffice to say. But it was great, took some fantastic photos, got some great color, piled back into their car, drove hours down the mountain, got back to my rental car, and they were about to drive away. The sun was about to go down, and I didn't have my car keys with me. I like looked everywhere they were about to leave. So I, and I, I know it sounded like I was going to get stung by a bee. I did not get stung by a bee in the story. <laughs> I did, however, leave my car keys that had fallen out of my pocket when I was changing into the African bee suit, like at the top of the mountain. So like this poor guy, oh, no. you know, it was like my first kind of like field assignment, you know, I'd like, he was doing me a big favor, which, you know, like the, how that position is too. It's like kind of this kind of cautious relationship in terms of like, you know, them giving you a ride, getting access. And just as they were about to leave for the night, go home to their families, I was like, I don't have my car keys. And, you know, there's 
bears and mountain lions around. And so we had to basically drive hours back up the mountain. Sure enough, my keys were like on the, luckily I found them quite easily, but they were like on the ground by the hives. So yes, I was very embarrassed by that. Luckily they were very nice. He gave me a bunch of honey, Um, (laughs) but I I just felt like so bad. Like, you know, it should have, it was an extra like five hours to go back to get the car keys. Yeah. Wow. (sighs) Ah, yeah. Yeah, that reminds me uh, of being a young journalist. My first job, I would lock my keys in my car all the time, all the time. I'd go out to report on a story, and I don't know, you're just in a rush or something. And you're like, flustered. You're a little flustered, right? And you're like, you're juggling like your notebooks, your recorders. Like you're just like you have so many things to keep track of that I think I can totally see how that happens all the time. Anyway, now I don't have a car. Don't have that problem. <laughs> then, what is the coolest place or situation? Or really coolest, weirdest, most surreal situation your job has taken you to really how I sum it up is a pinch me. I can't believe this is my job or my life sort of moment. Can I go back to pandas again? I feel like I'm talking about like pandas in China too sure. much. But, um, so when we were there, we got access as like the first Westerners to this private nature reserve called like Lao Hagao that was opening up. And there were like a large concentration of pandas that lived in this park. We went in. It was like this beautiful research station. You know, rain was falling softly. It was in the Min, the Minshan or the Minshan Mountains um, in Sichuan. And the next morning, like we'd spent, the, you know, a night there with like all the scientists. There were like golden monkeys outside. The next morning, we went tracking for wild pandas. We did not see any. No one really sees them. We did find some wild panda poop, which was like, they were very excited about that. Apparently that's quite rare. <laughs> and we also saw like a very like deadly and dangerous viper. <laughs> but that was, that was it. But I think like having access to that landscape, it was just, it was so beautiful. It was so special. No one else had been in there before. Yeah, that ranks, that ranks pretty high for me. Let's see. I guess before we go into the last few questions, I was going to ask you this. I, I don't know if you listened to the full uh, Kendra Pierre Lewis episode, but uh we do talk uh, a bit about it, and that is, like, any thoughts on bear sex? Have you <laughs> seen bear sex? Uh, any opinions on her photography of bear sex? <laughs> I know, Kendra's, like, quite a fan of the bear sex. Um, I was, like, edging onto my beat. Um, have I seen bear sex? <laughs> I don't think I've seen... Have I seen bear sex? No, I saw, like, my first experience seeing a polar bear, it, like, was very majestic, and then it just, like, squatted and, like took a shit basically which was like quite a letdown for a polar bear like you don't picture that being your first polar bear moment <laughs> but sex hmm <laughs> i mean the pandas are like they're quite hard to breed right like they're very they're fertile for like 24 hours or something per year yeah that's what i was thinking if you had been able to witness them uh trying to breed pandas but uh, maybe they keep that pretty closed off well they do like, artificial insemination too there's like these very graphic color illustrations or like photos of like a panda being inseminated in like the Chengdu base I remember that I took a photo of that <laughs> it's just like so bizarre um I've seen like multiple bears in the same you know I've, se- I've seen like grizzlies eating salmon like that kind of scenario but no not like a copulation not really like a copulation sense no but like I mean I support I support bears having sex since many of them are endangered so we should make more bears um, yeah <laughs> but that's, that's those are my thoughts Okay, couldn't help but ask a little bit of a callback. People should go back and check that out for more bear talk if they haven't gotten enough. And the story about the polar bear did remind me when I was at the Chengdu Panda Research Center, we caught the pandas at like a very, very active moment. 
and these like juvenile pandas, I forget, they were like two, three years old, were all fighting and basically playing King of the Mountain and, you know, pushing the other bears down into the little <laughs> gulch between where yeah. you view the bears and like where they're they're at. And so one bear panda finished pushing his like three competitors all down the hill and then he rolled on his back and just took a giant shit <laughs> and it was like okay yeah he is he is the king i guess of the mountain and there are probably like a thousand tourists with their iphones taking photos of that right <laughs> right yeah i don't i didn't have a, a smartphone for a couple of years oh. after that so i had my crappy little you know however many megapixel camera but yeah. probably have those deep in the archive <laughs> Uh, before we get to the last two questions, did anything come to mind on the best journalistic article piece, whatever you've consumed recently? Can I mention a documentary instead? Sure. Okay. I would say um, one of the best things I saw last year was the Fire of Love documentary, which was basically chronicling using archival footage of like these two volcanologists who were killed in an uh, eruption in Japan. Just like really beautifully done, um, I guess. Yeah, maybe I like don't read long form as much now that I work for Reuters and, you know, you're writing all day <laughs> and having written a book. Um, but no, that was probably what stood out to me in like the past six months was that documentary. Just a really like the way that she crafted through the footage, like, you know, this love story between these two people as well as their love for volcanoes. I think that that was, yeah, one of the best pieces of like media that I've consumed lately. Then for the final two questions, first, what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other piece of media about journalists and why? I was going to joke about how to lose a guy in 10 days, but I feel like that's not a good answer. Um, <laughs> she does write for a women's magazine, right? Yeah, exactly. Andy Anderson, icon. Um, <laughs> and she was, she's like upset because they don't want to take her story about like Myanmar to like the women's magazine. It's like, yeah, obviously, like know your audience. <laughs> but no, I would, in, in seriousness, I would say I quite enjoyed A Private War about um, Rick Colvin. It was like the kind of biopic I think it was a really honest portrayal of conflict journalists and sometimes why they do the job, getting addicted to that kind of job. Um, I, yeah, a really powerful film, I would say, that one. Then the final question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? <laughs> I have always thought I wanted want to be like a homicide investigator. And I have a good reason for that, because I think the skill set is like quite similar to journalism in a way, like doing interrogations, doing interviews, trying to gather evidence and information to like rebuild a story of what happened. I don't know. I think that that's what I would perhaps lean towards. Yeah, that would be a great job. What else would I do? I don't know, like something, maybe something fluffier, like, you know, hotel interior design or something. But I think I'd, I think I'd be inclined to <laughs> be a, you know, a nice, yeah, homicide investigator. Good, good improvement from journalism. <laughs> No, I'm right there with you. Like, yeah, I'd be some sort of police investigator type of thing, FBI agent. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like just interviewing techniques like fascinate me and like the human condition. I think like that's just really interesting. And I think that's partially why I've come to really like the reporting aspect of journalism. And it's like the same thing, right? Like, getting scoops, getting exclusives. It's like getting, you know, the murderer to confess. It's like, oh, it's all like, kind of the same. <laughs> it's all kind of the same motivation, which is no one's going to ever want to speak to us again now. But um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 okay cool well that is the final question i'll just wrap up by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast gloria thank you for having me jake and see you at work that's our show thanks for listening to my conversation with gloria dickey 
a climate and environment correspondent for Reuters in London. Gloria's book, Eight Bears, will be available as of July 11th in the United States and August 25th in the UK. I highly encourage you to go check it out. There are links in the podcast description to pre-order or buy it on Amazon or ask about it at your local bookshop. Those and other links to some of the things Gloria talked about are in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like this episode of Foreign Correspondence, please subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at @foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode in August. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.